Hi everyone, my name is Kim Kariuki and I'm joined by my co-host Ken Geshinga. Ken, please go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is uh, Ken Geshinga. I'm the Chief Economist at Mentor Economics. Um, our work is really to analyze the state of the economy and from a point of independence and help our clients really understand how the future will stack up. I'm particularly excited about the conduct of monetary policy and how innovative developments such as mobile money can contribute to economic growth. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Excellent. I am Kim Kariuki. I am an engagement director at Busara. We love to understand how people make decisions and how the decision-making process can be improved to help innovative programs, products, and services scale. We are mainly in Nairobi, Kenya, but have presence across Africa and do work broadly across the developing and global South. Great, so today we're here to talk about a number of different things and our platform is called Free Lunch. I'm sure some of you must be wondering why we call this thing Free Lunch. And Ken, would you explain to our podcast listeners what is this thing about Free Lunch? Absolutely. You know, when we were brainstorming for the name of this podcast, obviously we wanted something that speaks to economics, but we didn't want something that is um, so direct in the name. We felt sort of a witty play on an economics concept would be more interesting because we think we want to be witty, we want to be interesting. And, you know, we thought through and, you know, we thought about it and then the concept of there is no free lunch which is a concept that has been put out there to sort of suggest that in this life, there are always trade-offs. You know, when you get something, there'll almost always be an alternative expectation for that. And I think the play on that name to free lunch, uh, given that the fact that we want to make it into a lively conversations about the themes that affect our economic lives in a very breaking down complex economic theories into um, ideas that the ordinary person um, can really access. I think that sort of informed the name. No, excellent, Ken. I like that. And, you know, you talked about this issue of trade-offs. So I'm curious, Ken, as you're talking to us, are you trading off your lunch? What are you having for lunch today? There's always a trade-off, Kim, and, you know, the theme of opportunity cost is possibly one of the most important concepts that most people don't appreciate. For every activity, for every, even the time you're taking to have your lunch, you could be working on a concept note for a unicorn that could end up raising you a billion dollars. There's always a trade-off. There's always an opportunity cost, and I think one important concept that maybe we might have to spend time in future is the difference between um, accounting profit and economic profit, or accounting mm. loss and economic loss. A lot of people don't appreciate, but uh, I think these are the things that we'll really be unpacking um, as we move forward. No, thank you for that. I agree and want to thank all of our listeners for trading off their leisure time to listen to this. Hopefully you enjoy our free lunch served hot and fresh by myself and Ken. All right, so today we're here to talk about the government stimulus package and i know economists have been grappling with you know good idea bad idea was it enough was it sufficient ken what are your thoughts 
Yeah, I mean, it, when the president read that 53.7 billion stimulus plan, they, I got so many calls on what I thought it was. I thought there were some useful things in there. I thought things around innovation, such as the e-voucher, e-vouchers for farmers to buy farm inputs. I thought that was something new that I'd not seen before, and it was a welcome change. But my overall assessment was, I thought it was a bit too little because most economists are sort of agreeing that we need somewhere between five to 7% of GDP worth of stimulus. So that's somewhere in the ballpark area of 350 to 400 billion shillings. So I think there is some innovative thinking that's starting to come um, from government, but I think the concern is possibly it's a drop in the ocean and we need to scale up those initiatives by almost a factor of six or seven. Very interesting. You know, when I remember when I heard the president read off the stimulus package and the reaction thereafter, I was torn. So on the one hand, I felt like, ah, this is Kenyans just being Kenyans in their typical fashion. This is the status quo prevailing. You know, people want to gripe and mourn through bricks at a glass house. But then, you know, because at that point, the $537 million package that was announced, you know, somehow just sounded lofty. It sounded huge. It sounded, you know, like a decent figure. Until they started computing the math, and then you, you know, can you rightly put something there around how economists are thinking between, you know, five to seven percent? When I tried to then do the math, I realized, oh man, like this is actually less than one percent of our GDP. <laughs> then I was like, oh wow, this, 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 this is really interesting. So I was anchored on the issue of the figure, like five hundred thirty-seven million dollars. But then, you know, you put it in context, it, it then sort of colors it, the whole thing in a different way. But I tell you, I like the idea that at least we try to cover real economy sectors. So we talked about education, SMEs, health, agriculture, water and, water and manufacturing. But the, the thing again about this stimulus, and, and Ken, I'd love your thoughts on this. So I then began to think of it as, you know, what's, what's a stimulus supposed to be? Is it something that, you know, it's a drop in the ocean, yes. Is it like a bag of maize seed that you plant? And, you know, it's just a little maize seed, but in, you know, 30 to 60 to 90 days, you could have a bumper harvest that, you know, can feed the nation or at least feed your local community or at the very least survive the household through the crisis. So from that perspective, I then began to anchor less on the 1% or less than 1% of GDP, then began to think, wow, are there, is it designed in such a way that it can be that Macy that we plant in the ground and then in 30, 60, 90 days, we actually have a huge turnaround for the economy, Ken? Uh, I think that's a powerful question. And I love how you introduced the concept of the anchoring effect. And um, obviously you come into this conversation with more credentials in behavioral economics <laughs> but it plays a huge a huge role in how yeah. you think about it um, you're, you're very right sometimes when people hear large numbers like 537 million dollars or 53.7 billion shillings it, it it sounds huge until you ask yourself in relation to what yeah. and 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 i think that's the big thing and for me when i try to understand that number 
I, I reflected on what happened uh, almost 12 years ago when we had the post-election violence in Kenya. And uh, Kenya's, as a part of the recovery process, mm. actually Kenya's officially first economic stimulus plan mm. was launched. And that time, uh, our president was a minister of finance. And the value of that stimulus plan was about 20, about 25 billion shillings. Mm. So if you really think about it, 25 billion shillings was injected and the post-election violence uh, really affected only certain parts of the country, number one. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, we didn't have a, tot a lockdown or even a partial lockdown of the economy. Uh, number three, it, it, there was no global element to it, so our international trade was continuing. Um, if that situation merited 25 billion shillings, we definitely merit about 10 times more. Because yeah. what we have right now, uh, not only are industries closed, but we have a global pandemic. So I think definitely we, we should have seen, we'd seen something almost 10 times yeah. what was injected in at that point. But to your question of what is a stimulus uh, program, and I think the name stimulus, really we start really with the root name, mm. which is really to stimulate. You yeah. know, when you talk of sort of like a stimulant, coffee, teas, all these things are considered, you know, stimulants. Yeah. And they make you, if you are lethargic or weak, you start feeling stronger and better and you get this sugar rush, if yeah. you like. Correct, you correct, know? correct. And it's the same thinking for an economy. When things are slow and lethargic and you're beginning to contract and deflation is around the corner, you know, economics has provided tools in both fiscal policy, uh, but more profoundly in monetary policy to be yeah. able to get the economy out of that. So the idea is to stimulate. So we, people need to have more money in their pockets to be able to spend. And only through spending is aggregate demand in the economy built up over time. Interesting. No, thank you for explaining all of that. And, you know, and it's actually gotten my hunger going and, and thirst to sort of dig into some of these numbers. <laughs> and, you know, let's look at this in, in detail. So a number of pieces seemed interesting. So on the agricultural side, again, I was anchored on the $30 million that was allocated for e-vouchers. Then I began to compare that to how many smallholder farmers. So it was around 200,000 smallholder farmers that was listed. Again, there was no clarity whether it was crop or livestock. But then it actually, if you do the math, it comes to about 150 dollars per farmer or 15,000 Kenya shillings. Is that sufficient? Is that impressive? What do you think, Ken? Uh, well, I think the idea was noble in the sense that, and the president used the phrase, secure the supply chains. Yeah. And I think that was the original idea. How do you secure the, the food chains, the food supply chains? Mm. The two powerful themes that came out in this stimulus and maybe we might reflect on, on it a bit, is we have an example of conditional transfers and unconditional transfers. Mm -hmm. The 250 million shillings that was sent to M-Pesa yeah. uh, people, obviously these are highly vulnerable communities. Uh, those, that's an example of your conditional, of your yeah. unconditional. Yeah. But if you really think of the voucher system, it's really sort of forcing the farmer you can only use it to go and buy farm inputs. Mm. 
and be able to plant those seeds. And so it, it keeps you honest in the sense that it keeps you, uh, you have to go and sort of participate in the farming ecosystem. And I think what happens is there is less opportunity for plunder in the terms or, or, there, or misdirection of funds into other things that might not go into agriculture and affect food security. So I think the idea of that they decided to lock that in into a voucher system, I think was profound. I think they realized that there's definitely opportunity for funds to be misdirected. <clears throat> and I think it, 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 it can help supply, uh, secure the food chain. I think the only challenge is, you know, we talk of having 5 million farmers yeah, you know, small scale farmers around the country, and you know how will they? And many of them are not in formal unions or formal organizations. Many of them still struggle with access to credit. In fact, we did some research some some time ago, and mm. only about three four percent of bank loans go to to agriculture. Yet it contributes to about twenty five percent of of our GDP. So that uh, lack of willingness of banks to enter that sector and provide access to credit. I think that's sort of like the downside. But I think the upside to beyond securing this was the idea that there'll also be sort of the, the agricultural extension services sort of being put on board. And hopefully we can get some knowledge spillover as part of those initiatives. Correct. If you're just joining us, this is Free Lunch, our premiere episode. And we're discussing the government stimulus package that was announced a couple of days back. And Ken has just been zeroing in on the agricultural piece. We're trying to explore whether the $30 million that's been allocated through e-vouchers to support about 200,000 farmers is going to be sufficient. And, you know, Ken, you know, you've talked about something that's interesting, especially on this idea of conditional cash transfers. So my limited exposure and immersion into cash transfers of this nature is that, you know, they're great because for the things you've just said, behaviorally, you can lock in people's consumption or spending all that voucher to a very specific need. And that simplifies the decision-making process, right? So a farmer doesn't have to think, oh, am I going to spend this $150 on school fees or on paying down debt or paying my rent or what have you, paying my rates for my farm. I'm actually going to go and buy input. So that's excellent. But there's a challenge in that it brings about a host of complexity in administration. So it mm. means that somewhere, someone has to be managing the e-voucher system, making sure it goes to the 200,000 farmers exactly, making sure that the points of redemption are ready to receive the vouchers, and, and I feel like, whereas it is noble, it seems like it's going to introduce a lot of complication. And I even worry that whether that whole 30 million will be allocated towards the voucher, or if you net off some of the costs for administration, maybe then farmers end up getting something somewhere closer to 80 or $90 uh, towards purchasing inputs. I think that's a very, very powerful observation um, you've made there. And uh, if you were to compare Kenya scenario with other countries that have that voucher system, you obviously have your India there mm. has a voucher system for its farmers. 
And uh, I, I'm pleased to be told that in Malawi, in Zambia, um, they have tried this. And But I agree with you. I think there can be some administrative issues that come up. But I think even more, more importantly, and sort of like uh, more, more challenging than the administrative issue is uh, information and access to information on what's going on. Sure. Because this voucher system is coming from sort of like a central economic policy planner right. sitting in the central business district and not oh, really no. aware <laughs> of the complexities yeah. of what we see at the ground yeah. is happening there. And sometimes yeah. that's the problem. Sometimes it sounds very good in terms of uh, theory, yeah. but you realize there are some uh, things that we might not be alive to yeah. in terms of how communities are exchanging goods and services, yeah. that if we take that agency away from them, yeah. um, we end up sometimes complicating their lives even more because yeah. uh, we, don't have, we don't have perfect information. That's the challenge of it. Correct. Now, you said something there about central planner, and you took me back to my college days. And, you know, a piece that, you know, you said central plan, I went back to college, I remembered, you know, China and the iron rice bowl and how they did their great leap forward. But then my mind settled randomly on the 1991 privatization push in the former Soviet Union. And, you know, it came similar scenarios. So at the, at the I believe in March 91, when the government was thinking around how do we privatize the national assets of the Soviet Union, there are a number of decisions, number of ideas, I'm sure that were floated. And ultimately folks decided let's use a voucher system. So they came up with vouchers and the population had an opportunity to receive a voucher. And you know, it's great because then at least the, the, the theory of change was that, hey, I'll get a voucher, I have a piece of the national wealth so whether it's in gas whether it's in broadcasting and maybe for our listeners who may not have been born at that time and i might be dating myself here slightly you know at this point in the soviet union's history everything was owned by the government and so there's a push to get away from the system let's privatize let's em embrace free markets and this was at the beginning or this was at the tail end of a crisis as well so the idea of, you know, we're coming out of the communist system, this thing hasn't quite worked for us, let's move to privatization, let's give everyone a piece, a voucher. You know, a whole bunch of vouchers were given out. But the weird thing is, the vouchers were given out to people at a time when they were in crisis. So people didn't have food to eat, people didn't have jobs. So you have a few vouchers given off to rural populations. And, and imagine this for a moment. I haven't been able to work. My husband or my spouse has been missing uh, and, and exiled in some sort of fashion. Now you come up with a voucher and tell me that this is worth maybe 10,000 rubles or whatever value it was then, and, and try and convince me that this is of value. The, the, it, was a, it was a disaster because people, one, weren't able to value this, so this is, again, a challenge anytime you're trying to introduce something that has no in intrinsic value, is that you have to convince people of its value, and that was difficult during a crisis. And poor farmers were still, as they were still trying to hold on to and understand what this voucher was about. 
and you had a few entrepreneur Russians who went around in the community scooping up these vouchers and giving people cash instead. So they'd come to you and say, ah, this government doesn't care about you. What is this paper even going to do for you anyway? You don't have food, you don't have water, you know, you're, you're in crisis. Hey, let me give you cash and you give me the voucher. And, you know, it's not unlike what we see, what we saw in Africa or in Kenya a couple of years back again, and I'm dating myself probably first multi-party election where people went around buying um, people's voters cards. But that's because people didn't have a way of valuing what's the importance of this thing. And, you know, cash is king. So in Russia, folks sold off their vouchers. And literally within a week, the noble dream that the government had, that let's, let's, re- let's return the wealth of the nation to the population by giving off vouchers, ended up being a, you know, a nightmare scenario because by the end of that week, everyone... You know, all these vouchers had been scooped up by a few entrepreneurizing Russians, and all the national assets were now in the hands of eight or nine really strong Russian figures, uh, later on called oligarchs. But yeah, so everything. So you can imagine the government at that point had tried to pri- was privatizing their oil and gas, their broadcaster, everything that could be nationalized ended up being owned by a few people. So. Another problem of vouchers is, you know, cash, cash is king. And if people don't understand the voucher, then they'll go for cash. But that's very interesting, Kim, you should say that. And when you said the vouchers didn't have intrinsic value, I was wondering why. Because I would imagine a voucher should have, because a voucher is almost like a document that says you have the obligation to buy up to this amount. Mm -hmm. So it's very specific. In, in, in it, and I'm surprised, I don't know about the Soviet experience, but I, I will not understand why um, uh, you'd say it has no intrinsic value. In fact, when mm. I remember the Kenya Airports Authority, mm. when they wanted to um, tender off some restaurants, some cafeterias within the Kenya Airports Authority, yeah. originally it was, a, it was a voucher system yeah. where all the employees of Kenya Airports Authority would get a lunch voucher yeah. And they would go to the restaurant. And um, at that time, it was at the waving base. It's long been closed now. Yeah. But it's a restaurant where you could go and have a meal and yeah. uh, pay with your voucher. Yeah. And the moment they removed that system and they, they started giving the people cash, yeah. um, the restaurant had to close because people ended up now saving the mm. money to use it for, for other areas. So it actually it became more destructive for the restaurant owners in that sense. And for me, I, I'm actually very much in support of a voucher system in the sense that yeah. it, it has intrinsic value. Yeah. It can actually work as a complementary currency, if you think mm. about it, especially in a scenario where there is limited money supply in a country such as Kenya. Yeah. We have this perennial cash crunch. Yeah. You know, if sort of think about it if we could say let's pay young people in kibera yeah uh all those young unemployed people in kibera uh, yeah. they go clean up kibera and at the end of the week they're given a voucher and yeah. with that voucher they could actually go and buy go to a naivas or a quick mart yeah. and get household goods to be able to meet their obligations that can really reduce unemployment 
and boost the local um, economy. So I think it's an area where we need to look at. And if you think of like, for example, the Safaricom Bonga points, yes, you know, yes. these are loyalty points that obviously it's, it's if you think about it, it's, it's a digital voucher if you like, because indeed you can, you can go to uh, any supermarket that Safaricom has a partnership with and buy goods. And if you, anything that facilitates transactions of goods and services yeah. has to be as a complementary currency, which benefit can only be to improve the common good of the economy. So I think it's a fascinating space for research, which we probably need to dig a bit more. No, you know, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you've said something there about, you know, why doesn't it have intrinsic value? Maybe to answer directly, I'd say this is at a time when, when the Soviet government was collapsing, trust was very low. So remember, people mm. have gone through an experience in an alternate form of economic organization that hasn't worked out well. So when trust is at an all-time low, you're introducing something new and novel. You're facing an uphill battle of whether this is credible or not, and whether this is trustworthy or not. And so because the ordinary population weren't privy to the discussions that were happening at the highest levels of the government at the time, you know, their perception of trust in this instrument called a voucher was super, super low. But you raised some good points on, you know, the intrinsicness of a, of a voucher. But, you know, it reminds me, you know, both of us went through the, the 844 system, the previous uh, education system in Kenya, and we were taught, you know, what are the, were there three or four characteristics of money, right? There was something about yes. money and currency. Money is a measure of value. I'm trying to jot them down. I can't even remember like all four. <laughs> I can I can remind you. First, yes. it's a measure of accounting. Yes, a measure uh, of value. Check. Number two, it's a store of value. Store of value. Check. Uh, two points. Yeah. <laughs> number three, it was a medium of exchange. Aha, uh -huh, there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you really think about it, yeah. a medium of exchange and a store value are contradictory in yes. the sense that if, if something is a very good store of value like gold, mm -hmm. and are very unlikely to release it in terms of a medium of exchange because you want to hold it because <laughs> it's a very good store of value. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's one of the biggest contradictions in monetary thinking that the one thing that is a very good store value actually is a very poor medium of exchange because <laughs> everybody wants to hold it. <laughs> exactly. And you know, you've forgotten the last one, which was a measure of wealth, right? So your status, your, uh, your, your, your sense of pride and identity. Now, a piece of paper that has, you know, a little squibbling here, squibbling there, that says, okay, I'm entitled to X um, if you don't have trust in the issuer. So part of this issue of, you know, why African governments are very reluctant to Bitcoin and other sorts of alternate currencies. And in Kenya, Bangla Pesa, which I think, you know, we really need to revisit in another episode, is who is the backer of this? Who is the backer of these alternative currencies, right? Like who's, who's, in whose name is this thing a, a measure of value? Um, and that was the problem, right? So like when you think of some of the examples you've raised, like with loyalty points, yes, 
I am happy to redeem, you know, that, that loyalty point for value. If I trust the person who's backing up that value, right? If I, if I, if I trust the, the agency, the entity that has issued right. the value. But if I have little trust or, you know, and Kenyans would resonate with this, when some of our large uh, commercial uh, supermarkets disappeared, you know, now all of a sudden you have points that are huge but don't really count for much, right? There's, there's, there's no value, there's no intrinsic value or extrinsic value anymore because your, the backer is no longer there. And so it, I, I would love to see a scenario where even as we're thinking about you know, alternative systems and, and vouchers could be great, like you're saying, in terms of releasing liquidity, it raises another issue of points of redemption. So this is only good if I can then go and release the value at an outlet. But if I get to an outlet, and we've seen this in the health space, I get there and they tell me, oh, we don't accept that cover or we don't, we're not registered with national government or something else, then that presents a problem, no? So then now you've actually killed the liquidity and, and, trapped, and, and trapped people in a system where they can't release value out of these vouchers. Wow, Kim, I think this has to be the most interesting conversation and I couldn't <laughs> agree more, especially when you talk about uh, trust or even trust deficit yeah. and what it does yeah. um, to currents because you're right, the, the power, you know, when, we were, when the dollar was anchored on the gold standard, mm -hmm. it was really on the physical bars. You could actually go to Fort Knox yeah. and exchange that currency and get gold bars. But when the world moved towards the fiat currency, yeah. It was really, really about uh, this, the name of the United States and the credibility of yes. really the country. And yeah. that's what the world moved on to. And in a sense, it was a good thing because you could unleash much more liquidity because you're not tied to the presence of a commodity, yeah. which you have to keep mining everywhere. So, and I like that part of money has to, it has to be acceptable. And that's sort of like the qualifying thing that it has to be readily acceptable. And if you think about it, the legal tender is the ultimate voucher yes <laughs> because indeed. it can be accepted everywhere <laughs> so it's really legal tender means it's like a voucher to the power of infinite meaning exactly. everybody is actually bound to accept it but when you talk about community currents then i love you raised the issue of bangla pesa because it really played a big role in reducing unemployment in bangladesh mombasa yeah it really helped people unlock all these uh, areas of wealth, local wealth, cultural wealth, heritage. And um, for me, I think uh, the way it was driven out of the scene, I felt we should have studied it a bit more mm. and sort of ask ourselves, is, are there some nuances that, is there some local element that it's tapping into that it might be harder for a uh, United States dollar to get into? So I think that's a very powerful theme and especially back to the life of the farmer. Yeah. You know, farmers live in a very interesting world where everything is, it's very here and now, yeah. you know, the level of, uh, uh, it's really about uh, cash is king. And that you remember during the demonetization exercise last year, uh, the yeah. central bank had to run some because apparently some farmers were exchanging large amounts of wheat for cash. Oh, wow. And at that point they said, farmers always exchange anything for cash, you know, right. they, uh, <laughs> they they have a huge confidence in, yeah. in, 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 in cash. So when 
they are presented with this alternative opportunity of an e-voucher system. Mm. Um, I think some of it, some of them might sort of feel a bit slighted in a way, mm -hmm. uh, but because of the limitations that come within it, and it might take sort of a bit more hand-holding before it becomes the norm. I got you. I like that parting shot of like, you know, currencies are the ultimate voucher. And, you know, I like that because, you know, it also has the backing of the government and the central banker in that country. So if all of a sudden this thing has no value, I'm entitled to go to the central banker and say, eh, eh, where is the, how come this is no longer a measure of value and a store of value and a medium of exchange and a measure of my wealth? Why is it just not worth why is it not worth any more than the, whatever it's printed on? But anyway, you, you talked about the challenges facing the African farmer. And again, if you're just joining us, this is our premiere episode. Thank you for being with us. We're discussing the government stimulus package. We've somehow found ourselves wading deep into vouchers and currency issues. But are now pivoting to talk about challenges facing the African farmer. And can you talk about the need to release liquidity I don't know if you know, but this week we celebrated World Nutrition Day. Woohoo! And wow. Yeah, World Nutrition Day. And our, and our theme, believe it or not, is eat right, bite by bite. And you know, <laughs> this idea of eating right, bite by bite, it reminds me of you know, the, the challenges that we personally faced about a week ago when we were trying to have lunch. And somebody was choking on a sausage that was not that was not right. And if you want more of that, please click below in the previous episodes. You 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 be able to hear Ken struggling on a sausage. But uh, eating right bite by bite is that possible, feasible given COVID and the stimulus package? You know, Kim, one of the best um, classes that I took as an undergraduate was on food. Mm. And I remember the, the, name, the name of the course was Feeding the World and Feeding Yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think it would fit perfectly to this conversation because there's a macro element of food security. When I say agriculture is 25% of GDP, blah, 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 employs all the youth, that's a very macro view. Mm. But there's a second part, and that's the feeding the world part. Mm. And the second part of the semester was feeding yourself. Mm -hmm. And it was really about nutrition and it's about well-being. And it's not just about quantity, but it's also about quality. Yeah. And I think sometimes that nuance um, gets a bit, a bit lost. I think sometimes as we move towards large-scale agriculture, it becomes about big agriculture and becomes about uh, quantity. Mm. But I think the world is moving towards also in terms of quality and, 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 and a sense of community. Yeah. And, and, and I remember one of the interesting books that we read in that particular class was The Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. And it's a fascinating assessment on um, what are we having for lunch today in terms mm -hmm. of nutrition, in terms of our lunch today. Mm. Uh, so I think um, what is, we are being invited to as economists is to, yes, look at the World Nutrition Day and say, yes, quality is as important as quantity. Every time I hear about uh, the big four, I, I, I hear food security, which is great, mm. but I don't hear about, you know, the, 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 the quality part of it. When we had the Blue Economy mm. Conference, it was last year, and some of the experts there were saying, 
you know, the amount of nutrition in the ocean, in the seas, mm. is incredible. Mm. And Japan has been able to tap into the nutritional value of the ocean. And I think Japan has possibly the highest longevity in terms of life um, expectancy. And right. I think the experts then were saying, you Kenyans are used to your ugali, your gideri, but think about the blue economy yeah. as an avenue for incredible nutrition, yeah. incredible taste. And I think if we can move towards that kind of thinking when we mark this year's World Nutrition Day, I think we will be a leader in, in Africa. And you know, you, you raised and touched on such good points. And you know, this issue of quantity versus quality, to be honest, has some behavioral underpinnings, right? So back in the day, and again, I'm slightly dating myself, but I may have been in toddler, in toddler clothes or probably not even born yet. You know, Kenya went through a tremendous drought and the, 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 not discounting the loss of life and the, the, the chaos it caused, you have a scenario where people came out of that drought thinking, hey, you know, more food is better than quality food. And I think that's been a, a thing that we've seen. And also as incomes have grown, and not just in Africa or in Kenya, it's across the world, right? Like as we've become richer, people have invested more in what they're eating, not necessarily thinking about whether it's the most nutritious thing, but definitely more of it because we, we know spending power and purchasing ability has gone up. And, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping that we do in this World Nutrition Day is also think about, one, going back to crops that, you know, increase resilience, but also, two, thinking about how do you strengthen food systems that, is, that have been destroyed in part because of COVID, either because of shutdowns or lockdowns, uh, or because inputs couldn't get to farmers on time, or the planting season was destroyed, or if you're in East Africa and living through the apocalyptic times that we are in, you've had to battle floods and locusts and, and, and COVID itself. So all these things have taken a hit to supporting our food security. So I'm curious, you know, can we think about making our food systems more resilient and making our farmers more resilient and, you know, with or without vouchers? Like what, what can we do there? Mm, and uh, when it, I love the use of the word resilience mm. because it speaks to sustainability, it, it has a long-term view. Yeah. And one of the things that have been disrupted right now is those global supply chains. Yeah. And people are realizing uh, there is value in local supply chains. Yeah. And this is something that had been a niche concept, especially it began mostly in the, in the United States. Yeah. There was almost a movement towards uh, bringing more from the local communities. So sort of food was part of uh, a bigger ecosystem of supporting local farmers and supporting local uh, produce and creating those local communities and local economies, which was quite profound. It's still a niche concept mm. because at, at the end of the day, the issue of price comes in yeah. and you find sometimes price because you can get cheap imports you know, it, it, it always poisons that conversation. Yeah. And Kenyans are very price sensitive. So I think we can always have these great concepts of uh, more resilient and uh, more sustainable. But you have to understand that Kenyan is such a price sensitive citizen. 
Yeah. For example, you're saying Kenyans are the most price sensitive in the world. But <laughs> even an extra 20 shillings yep. uh, in terms of expenditure, somebody yep. might actually sweep. So I think, yes, we say China sort of has contributed to cheaper prices and cheaper inputs. Yeah. And but in worlds where incomes are very low, yeah, and uh, the currency is still very limited, yeah, the issue yeah. of price is such an important part that sometimes we forget the nutrition and sort of like these other nice things yeah. that we would love to have, and I think that has to be the issue. Interesting, and you know, it's it's you've touched on such interesting points that, on the one hand, when you think of price sensitivity. And in Africa, we are blessed that we have an abundance of natural resources that can help us bolster our food security, whether it's you know, large tracts of land, <clears throat> a huge population that can actually till that land. You know, the cost of bare essentials, maize, beans, milk, meat, eggs, is still fairly costly that you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's troubling that you know, a family will struggle to put food on the table in a country that really has no business not being food sufficient. And countries like Israel, for example, where, you know, they really have to fight the elements to be able to farm. Like everything about the natural environment is saying you have no business farming here. Israel has been able to say, no, 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 we will not only farm, but we will feed our people and export excess mm-hmm. um, to in the, in, in, the way that, in the best way that we can. And it reminds me of a documentary I watched way back and the Israeli prime minister was explaining their approach to farming. And I, I was floored. Like I listened to it and I, I was in shock. So his, his main thrust was because of the nature of where Israel sits, the geopolitics, and the fact that they you know, don't have rains as frequently as other parts of Africa do, they really have to be careful and mindful of how they use their natural resources when it comes to planting, when it comes to uh, livestock. So they calculate every liter of water. Where is that going? So is that going into domestic consumption? Is that going into farms? Is that going into, and if it's going into farms, how many farms? And then he picked an example of dairy production. And he said, they work backwards based on a figure of how much milk demand is Israel going to have in the next year? So then they divide that demand across the farms, or across the kibbutz, and then say, okay, so each kibbutz is going to produce X. And then walk backwards for that and say, okay, if that is the number of, that's the amount of milk production, how many cows is that? And then how much pasture is that? And then how many uh, liters of water are required in, in addition to supply and to serve that milk production ecosystem. And so they can work all the way backwards and provide you know, a fairly robust daily system that, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Israeli cows still produce the most milk um, of all livestock. And it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, again, when I did economics, the criti- one of the harsh criticisms that was there of the central planning government in China was that it wasn't possible or practical for a central planner to sit somewhere and dictate how many kilos of rice are going to be consumed and then walk backwards from that and then say each smallholder farmer 
should produce X amount of rice. But somehow the Israelis have made it work for a few value chains. So I, it's, it's, it goes to show like if the will is there and the political motivation is there, you know, the, the will finds a way. That's extremely insightful. I think the one advantage Israel has had over the rest of the world is it's made that mental leap when you have so many hostile neighbors. Yeah. The ability to feed yourself is so important. Yeah. You know, we take it for granted because here in Kenya, we are at peace with all our neighbors. Yeah. And it's easy to imagine that we can always import and export food. Yeah. But can you imagine a situation in time when all your neighbors around Kenya are, are not exporting food to you? Like right yes. now, we depend on so much imports from Tanzania, all those yeah. onions and chilies that come from. Can you imagine in a situation where all your neighbors yeah. are not exporting? And yeah. I think... Israel, they contemplated that scenario and they made the necessary measures. So for them, it's, it's first a function of security mm. before an economics sector. And I think that's what we need to have in Kenya. I think, and sometimes I don't like the name agribusiness mm. because I think I feel like it, 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 it commoditizes agriculture into just one of the many sectors as if it's an option. Mm-hmm. But I realize it's not really an option. Yes, for the Big, large-scale farmers who can be very commercial, yeah. uh, yes, and they end up getting most of the credit from the banks. Yeah. But there's a whole layer of small-scale farmers who really, it's a livelihood. It's not even really an economy. It's really a livelihood and yeah. a sustenance. And I think if we start treating agriculture and the farmer from a position of security, national security, where almost the president gets griefs on what's in our strategic grain reserves every year? Yeah. When are we going to launch warehouse discounting? You know, warehouse discounting, invoice discounting, the concept was first floated in parliament 10 years ago, mm. and it only made its way to final reading last year, a oh, solid wow. nine years. So it tells you of all these cartels and interests. Mm. But the moment we decide in Kenya that agriculture is actually food security, and anybody who is uh, participating in corruption, any cartels, anything that is pro- preventing the economy from functioning smoothly is an act against national security. Exactly. If we get to that point, we'll become an Israel. We will yeah. be exporting food, not only to East Africa, to the whole of Africa. Correct. Correct. And, and you're right. You definitely also do need strong geopolitics. You need strong uh, inertia inside the country. You know, flashbacking a little bit on Zimbabwe in the early 90s. You know, Zimbabwe was the breadbasket of Africa and good grief. It's hard to believe that everything they went through thereafter. Uh, and, you know, it just goes to underscore, like there's, there's definitely, we, we need to look at national agriculture as not only, you know, food security issue, but like a national security issue. Like it's as bad as you invading the country, right? Like this is, this is high priority. And on that, you know, you've talked about, and we've been talking about some of these innovations on, you know, central planning and trying to think about national security. The thing that I'm waiting for, and I don't know when we will get there, is creating a futures market around our agricultural produce. So, you know, it just seems ridiculous that even with the warehouse discounting, our farmer today is going to pick that voucher, go plant maize. And it's still not sure what price he's going to get at the end of his planting cycle. 
and yeah. it just it just baffles my mind because it feels like you're shooting for the dark right like you're just hoping and praying that you get a good price and we've gone through this year in year out that you know it's it's ridiculous that no one has thought hey let's have a futures contract in place let's talk to farmers about quality and and it's great to see some private sector led initiatives i know i don't want to discount the work that some of the private sector partners have been doing in terms of contracting farmers etc but at a national level surely we should be able to come up with a market that you know you can buy and sell stocks in the agricultural futures market you as a farmer you know okay i am guaranteed x price for this quality on this particular date and as a government and as private sector we are all running to make sure that we can fulfill that futures contract and that on the day of delivery you know it's here's the produce at at the agreed price at the agreed quality farmer x here is your price uh, here's your income thank you for doing business right and so in markets where this happens you know farmers look at the price and decide is it worth going into production here we almost go in with a high level of optimism a little bit of nostalgia maybe a little bit of guilt because we didn't invest in farming sooner before we launched into our private careers and maybe just this fairly romanticized hope that you know all will work out well what do you think can am i being too harsh on our food systems i think you're absolutely spot on you know the chicago board of trade yeah. um i think was founded in the 1850s you know the concept that you've just discussed um, has been in existence in Chicago almost 170 years. Mm -hmm. For me, the fact that we are still struggling with this today, yeah. almost 170 years later, yeah. and and just from a broader perspective, just the spectacular lack of innovation yeah. or insights or research that is the local farmer can access. I think it's profound. If you think of the big research institutions we have, even here in Kenya, yeah. agriculture, very little of that actually gets to the farmer yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Sometimes you really sit back and you almost wonder this dearth of research that gets to the farmer or insight. You know, you sometimes wonder, is there an agenda of sorts to keep the farmer weak? Because it, it's, it's impossible that an idea yeah. can be in another country for well over a century, yeah. and you're still struggling. It's almost as if you're having a situation and your neighbor found a solution 200 years ago, right. and you're still <laughs> thinking through it, you know. <laughs> yes. It almost exactly. becomes almost conspiratorial. <laughs> yes, it's irrational. That's what that is. Yes, correct. <laughs> so sometimes I really wonder, because if you really think about it, a free farmer is a very independent mind. Yeah because he can make free decisions yeah. and, 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 and can chat, he has a high level of agency. Yeah. And sometimes I really wonder if um, there are people who maybe that might not be in their best interest, mm -hmm. you know, having that. And so this perpetual slavery relationship mm. that farmers are peasants mm. um, sometimes uh, fulfills a certain um, economic model. So sometimes mm -hmm. I'm tempted to think, in that direction because it's very hard to explain how research that has been known for over a century mm. is still not being um, sort of practiced. And that's one powerful example you've, you've just given. And that's something that can unlock immense wealth 
yeah. for a lot of farmers and can really improve the level of investment and on quality. I, I agree. I agree. And I like that piece of it. Is, it. is there a conspiracy out there? So it made me think, when I did my postgraduate, I was super surprised that one of our pivotal agricultural policy documents was crafted in the 1920s. And I like to think of myself as old, but I'm not that old. And to try and think that everything that we're doing now is being supported by something that, you know, Swinerton came up with back in the day, or at least was dubbed Swinerton back in the day, it is crazy, but it goes to show that we've underinvested in certain key pillars. And, and, and to be honest, I can understand you know, aspirationally a young democratic country looking to have its wings move forward, you know, leaping and growing in bounds. And you know, I don't want to hate on our, uh, our forefathers and people who came before us. I can understand how you know, certain sectors like, hey, get a white collar job, go be this, go do that, was super aspirational but we may have forgotten some of the foundational aspects of, you know, if we don't have food in our stomachs, then, you know, we can't very well eat the currency or Bangla Pesa. So, you know, then there's, there's a problem, right? So we, we, we need to revisit. But Ken, we've been talking for ages and I don't know if you want us to attempt uh, uh, the first conclusion or what are your thoughts? What do you want to do? No, I think it's a good time to wind up. I think those are powerful nuggets. When I think about the average age of the Kenyan farmer is about 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And I ask myself, where are the next generation of food suppliers? When I think about Nairobi, we are what, about 4 million people mm -hmm. who feeding mm -hmm. when all our fertile red soil in Kiambu has been turned into malls and real estate projects. Indeed. You know, who will feed us? Where are these young, vibrant farmers yeah. who will use technology, research, and really take our agriculture to the next level? I think those are the conversations that love to be part of as we move forward. I agree. And you know, you, you talked about where are the young, vibrant farmers. And I thought in my head, can I say where are the youth? Then I realized, yes, I'm out of the youth bracket, so I can actually... <laughs> point my finger and, and wave salaciously and say, where are the youth to address these challenges? But I guess, you know, the onus falls on all of us. COVID has equalized us in such a way that, you know, whether you're buying food from the supermarket or you're buying food from your mamamboga or grocery lady across the street, or you're going to a market or you used to go to a market that is now closed, food security affects us all. And I like in what you said that, you know, if we make and prioritize agriculture, as an issue of food security and national security as well, that you know, we, we may be able to finally break free of some of these shackles and, and launch into you know, a new destiny and a new era. So I guess let's put a comma in this conversation. Next week, we will definitely continue uh, to have vibrant conversations, maybe around some of the other issues around the budget, or, um, the stimulus package or maybe something else entirely and so if you have some ideas if you have some thoughts on what you would like us to talk about please don't hesitate to reach us out uh, ping us um, via social media platforms can do you know what is your twitter handle i'm on at k gishinga on twitter 
Oh man, now you, yours is so simple. So mine is a bit harder. Mine is at A-L-L-S-C-H-2001. Don't ask me why I picked that. Uh, Kim Karaoke was taken. To do with Alliance High School. Sadly, it does, but I'm very happy to be a proud alumnus of the premier um, high school in this country, the Alliance High School. But yes, please ping us on Twitter, uh, reach us out on Facebook, and we should be able to answer your questions and would love to incorporate your comments and feedback into our programming for the next episode. Can anything to say before we pen off? No, this was super exciting. Thank you so much for those um, very powerful insights, especially on the international part, uh, how we can compare Israel situation, the Soviet Union, and what that can mean in terms of how we think about Kenya. I think that was very powerful and thanks for that. And thank you as well, Ken. I am always in amazement of your command of different bits of his, uh, trivia and history. Did you do history in high school by any chance? I didn't. Ah, uh, you didn't. One day we need to talk about our education system. I that's think so. That's another episode <laughs> because to be honest, for the life in me, I can only hold firm a few numbers in my head at a time. And that might be explained by the fact that I left the youth bracket a couple of years back. So I guess I'm also reeling in my own <laughs> understanding my own sort of lifespan and, 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 and my, my, my fallibilities as an individual. But yes, this has been fun. Let's join, let's do it again. Please join us uh, for our next episode and feel free to share your comments, feedback on Twitter, Facebook, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. All right, everyone, have yourselves a lovely day. Okay, you didn't tell people what you're having for lunch. What are you having for lunch? Today I'm having ugali and chicken. <laughs> ah, interesting. So no sausages, eh? <laughs> That's the free lunch for today. Excellent. So I am still doing What's my regular dish. Game? See, here's the thing. I used to I used to love chapatis. Again, another byproduct of high school. And if you're not sure what a chapati is, it's some sort of a roti uh, made with flour and oil and water cooked just right. And if you know someone who who knows exactly what they're doing, they put a little ghee in there mm, or something. Uh, but now that's changed. I'm now more of a Puritan when it comes to food. I have become simple as, as, a, as of age. Now I enjoy things that are cooked through one process and one process only. Like boil it, uh, fry it, but don't do a bit of oil here and then steam it and then boil it and then do other things. I keep it simple with my food. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I am enjoying my dose of hot water as I continue on my journey on intermittent fasting. And that's content again for another episode. But thank you so much, guys. Have yourself a lovely day. Stay safe. Uh, remember to practice social distancing and we shall join you on the next episode. Bye.
Hi everyone, my name is Kim Karyuki and I'm joined by my co-host Ken Geshinga. Ken, please go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is uh, Ken Geshinga. I'm the Chief Economist at Mentor Economics. Um, our work is really to analyze the state of the economy and from a point of independence and help our clients really understand how the future will stack up. I'm particularly excited about the conduct of monetary policy and how innovative developments such as mobile money can contribute to economic growth. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Excellent. I am Kim Karyuki. I am an engagement director at Busara. We love to understand how people make decisions and how the decision-making process can be improved to help innovative programs, products, and services scale. We are mainly in Nairobi, Kenya, but have presence across Africa and do work broadly across the developing and global South. Great, so today we're here to talk about a number of different things and our platform is called Free Lunch. I'm sure some of you must be wondering why we call this thing Free Lunch. And Ken, would you explain to our podcast listeners what is this thing about Free Lunch? Absolutely. You know, when we were brainstorming for the name of this podcast, obviously we wanted something that speaks to economics, but we didn't want something that is um, so direct in the name. We felt sort of a witty play on an economics concept would be more interesting because we think we want to be witty, we want to be interesting. And, you know, we thought through and, you know, we thought about it and then the concept of there is no free lunch which is a concept that has been put out there to sort of suggest that in this life, there are always trade-offs. You know, when you get something, there'll almost always be an alternative expectation for that. And I think the play on that name to free lunch, uh, given that the fact that we want to make it into a lively conversations about the themes that affect our economic lives in a very breaking down complex economic theories into um, ideas that the ordinary person um, can really access. I think that sort of informed the name. Oh, excellent, Ken. I like that. And, you know, you talked about this issue of trade-offs. So I'm curious, Ken, as you're talking to us, are you trading off your lunch? What are you having for lunch today? <laughs> There's always a trade-off, Kim. And, you know, the theme of opportunity cost is possibly one of the most important concepts that most people don't appreciate. For every activity, for every, even the time you're taking to have your lunch, you could be working on a concept note for a unicorn that could end up raising you a billion dollars. There's always a trade-off. Mm. There's always an opportunity cost. And I think one important concept that maybe we might have to spend time in future is the difference between um, accounting profit and economic profit, or accounting mm. loss and economic loss. A lot of people don't appreciate. But uh, I think these are the things that we'll really be unpacking um, as we move forward. No, thank you for that. I agree and want to thank all of our listeners for trading off their leisure time to listen to this. Hopefully you enjoy our free lunch served hot and fresh by myself and Ken. All right. So today we're here to talk about the government stimulus package. And I know economists have been grappling with, you know, good idea, bad idea. Was it enough? Was it sufficient? 
Ken, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's when the president read that 53.7 billion stimulus plan, they, I got so many calls on what I thought it was. I thought there were some useful things in there. I thought things around innovation, such as the e-voucher, e-vouchers for farmers to buy farm inputs. I thought that was something new that I'd not seen before, and it was a welcome change. But my overall assessment was, I thought it was a bit too little because most economists are sort of agreeing that we need somewhere between five to 7% of GDP worth of stimulus. So that's somewhere in the ballpark area of 350 to 400 billion shillings. So I think there is some innovative thinking that's starting to come um, from government, but I think the concern is possibly it's a drop in the ocean and we need to scale up those initiatives by almost a factor of six or seven. Very interesting. You know, when I remember when I heard the president read off the stimulus package and the reaction thereafter, I, I was torn. So on the one hand, I felt like, ah, this is Kenyans just being Kenyans in their typical fashion. This is the status quo prevailing. You know, people want to gripe and mourn through uh, bricks at a glass house. But then, you know, because at that point, the $537 million package that was announced, you know, somehow just sounded lofty. It sounded huge. It sounded, you know, like a decent figure. Until they started computing the math. And then you, you know, can you rightly put something there around how economists are thinking between, you know, 5 to 7%. When I tried to then do the math, I realized, oh man, like this is actually less than 1% of our GDP. <laughs> then I was like, oh wow, this, 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 this is really interesting. So I was anchored on the issue of the figure, like $537 million. But then, you know, you put it in context, it, it then sort of colors it, the whole thing in a different way. But I tell you, I like the idea that at least we try to cover real economy sectors. So we talked about education, SMEs, health, agriculture, water and, water and manufacturing. But the, the thing again about this stimulus, and, and Ken, I'd love your thoughts on this. So I then began to think of it as, you know, what's, what's a stimulus supposed to be? Is it mm-hmm. something that, you know, it's a drop in the ocean, yes. Is it like a bag of maize seed that you plant and you know, it's just a little maize but in, you know, 30 to 60 to 90 days, you could have a bumper harvest that, you know, can feed the nation or at least feed your local community or at the very least survive the household through the crisis. So from that perspective, I then began to anchor less on the 1% or less than 1% of GDP. Then began to think, wow, are there... Is it designed in such a way that it can be that macy that we plant in the ground and then in 30, 60, 90 days, we actually have a huge turnaround for the economy? Ken? Uh, I think that's a powerful question. And I love how you introduced the concept of the anchoring effect. And um, obviously you come into this conversation with more credentials in behavioral economics, <laughs> but it plays a huge, a huge role in how yeah. you think about it. Um, you're, you're very right. Sometimes when people hear large numbers like $537 million or 53.7 billion shillings, it, it, it sounds huge until you ask yourself in relation to what? Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the big thing. And for me, 
when I tried to understand that number, I, I reflected on what happened uh, almost 12 years ago when we had the post-election violence in Kenya. And uh, Kenya's, as a part of the recovery process, mm. actually Kenya's officially first economic stimulus plan mm. was launched. And that time, uh, our president was a minister of finance. And the value of that stimulus plan was about 20, about 25 billion shillings. Mm. So if you really think about it, 25 billion shillings was injected and the post-election violence uh, really affected only certain parts of the country, number one. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, we didn't have a, tot a lockdown or even a partial lockdown of the economy. Uh, number three, it, it, there was no global element to it, so our international trade was continuing. Um, if that situation merited 25 billion shillings, we definitely merit about 10 times more because yeah. what we have right now, uh, not only are industries closed, but we have a global pandemic. So I think definitely we, we should have seen, we'd seen something almost 10 times yeah. what was injected in at that point. But to your question of what is a stimulus uh, program, and I think the name stimulus, really we start really with the root name, mm. which is really to stimulate you yeah. know, when you talk of sort of like a stimulant, coffee, teas, all these things are considered, you know, stimulants. Yeah. And they make you, if you are lethargic or weak, you start feeling stronger and better and you get this sugar rush, if yeah. you like. Correct, you correct, know? correct. And it's the same thinking for an economy. When things are slow and lethargic and you're beginning to contract and deflation is around the corner, you know, economics has provided tools in both fiscal policy, uh, but more profoundly in monetary policy, to be yeah. able to get the economy out of that. So the idea is to stimulate. So we, people need to have more money in their pockets to be able to spend. And only through spending is aggregate demand in the economy built up over time. Interesting. No, thank you for explaining all of that. And you know, and it's actually gotten my hunger going and, and thirst to sort of dig into some of these numbers. <laughs> and, you know, let's look at this in, in detail. So a number of pieces seemed interesting. So on the agricultural side, again, I was anchored on the $30 million that was allocated for e-vouchers. Then I began to compare that to how many smallholder farmers. So it was around 200,000 smallholder farmers that was listed. Again, there's no clarity whether it was crop or livestock. But then it actually, if you do the math, it comes to about $150 per farmer or 15,000 Kenya shillings. Is that sufficient? Is that impressive? What do you think, Ken? Uh, well, I think the idea was noble in the sense that, and the president used the phrase, secure the supply chains. Yeah. And I think that was the original idea. How do you secure the, the food chains, the food supply chains? Mm. The two powerful themes that came out in this stimulus, and maybe we might reflect on, on it a bit, is we have an example of conditional transfers and unconditional transfers. Mm -hmm. The 250 million shillings that was sent to M-Pesa yeah. uh, people, obviously these are highly vulnerable communities. Uh, those, that's an example of your conditional of your yeah. unconditional. Yeah. But if you really think of the voucher system, it's really sort of forcing the farmer 
you can only use it to go and buy farm inputs and be able to plant those seeds. And so it, it keeps you honest in the sense that it keeps you, uh, you have to go and sort of participate in the farming ecosystem. And I think what happens is there's less opportunity for plunder in the terms or, or, or misdirection of funds into other things that might not go into agriculture and affect food security. So I think the idea of that they decided to lock that in into a voucher system, I think was profound. I think they realized that there's definitely opportunity for funds to be misdirected. <clears throat> and I think it, 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 it can help supply, uh, secure the food chain. I think the only challenge is, you know, we talk of having 5 million farmers yeah, you know, small scale farmers around the country, and you know how will they? And many of them are not in formal unions or formal organizations. Many of them still struggle with access to credit. In fact, we did some research some some time ago, and mm. only about three four percent of bank loans go to to agriculture. Yet it contributes to about twenty five percent of of our GDP. So that uh, lack of willingness of banks to enter that sector and provide access to credit. I think that's sort of like the downside. But I think the upside to beyond securing this was the idea that there'll also be sort of the, the agricultural extension services sort of being put on board. And hopefully we can get some knowledge spillover as part of those initiatives. Correct. If you're just joining us, this is Free Lunch, our premiere episode. And we're discussing the government stimulus package that was announced a couple of days back. And Ken has just been zeroing in on the agricultural piece. We're trying to explore whether the $30 million that's been allocated through e-vouchers to support about 200,000 200, farmers is going to be sufficient. And, you know, Ken, you know, you've talked about something that's interesting, especially on this idea of conditional cash transfers. So my limited exposure and immersion into cash transfers of this nature is that, you know, they're great because for the things you've just said, behaviorally, you can lock in people's consumption or spending all that voucher to a very specific need. And that simplifies the decision-making process, right? So a farmer doesn't have to think, oh, am I going to spend this $150 on school fees or on paying down debt or paying my rent or what have you, paying my rates for my farm. I'm actually going to go and buy input. So that's excellent. But there's a challenge in that it brings about a host of complexity in administration. So it mm. means that somewhere, someone has to be managing the e-voucher system, making sure it goes to the 200,000 farmers exactly, making sure that the points of redemption are ready to receive the vouchers, and, and I feel like, whereas it is noble, it seems like it's going to introduce a lot of complication. And I even worry that whether that whole 30 million will be allocated towards the voucher, or if you net off some of the costs for administration, maybe then farmers end up getting some, somewhere closer to 80 or $90 uh, towards purchasing inputs. I think that's a very, very powerful observation um, you've made there. And uh, if you were to compare Kenya's scenario with other countries that have that voucher system, you obviously have your India there mm. has a voucher system for its farmers. 
And uh, I, I'm pleased to be told that in Malawi, in Zambia, um, they have tried this. And But I agree with you. I think there can be some administrative issues that come up. But I think even more, more importantly, and sort of like uh, more, ch more challenging than the administrative issue is uh, information and access to information on what's going on. Sure. Because this voucher system is coming from sort of like a central economic policy planner right. sitting in the central business district and not oh, really no. aware <laughs> of the complexities yeah. of what we see at the ground yeah. is happening there. And sometimes yeah. that's the problem. Sometimes it sounds very good in terms of uh, theory, yeah. but you realize there are some uh, things that we might not be alive to yeah. in terms of how communities are exchanging goods and services. Yeah. That if we take that agency away from them, yeah. um, we end up sometimes complicating their lives even more because yeah. uh, we, don't have, we don't have perfect information. That's the challenge of it. Correct. Now, you said something there about central planner, and you took me back to my college days. And, <laughs> you know, a, a piece that, you know, you said central planner, I went back to college, I remembered, you know, China and the Iron Rice Bowl and how they did their great leap forward. But then my mind cycled randomly on the 1991 privatization push in the former Soviet Union. And, you know, it came similar scenarios. So at the, at the, I believe in March 91, when the government was thinking around how do we privatize the national assets of the Soviet Union, there are a number of decisions, number of ideas, I'm sure that were floated. And ultimately, folks decided, let's use a voucher system. So they came up with vouchers and the population had an opportunity to receive a voucher. And, you know, it's great because then at least the, the theory of change was that, hey, I'll get a voucher. I have a piece of the national wealth. So whether it's in gas, whether it's in broadcasting, and maybe for our listeners who may not have been born at that time, and I might be dating myself here slightly, you know, at this point in the Soviet Union's history, everything was owned by the government. And so there was a push to get away from the system. Let's privatize. Let's embrace free markets. And this was at the beginning, or this was at the tail end of a crisis as well. So the idea of, you know, we're coming out of the communist system. This thing hasn't quite worked for us. Let's move to privatization. Let's give everyone a piece of voucher. You know, a whole bunch of vouchers were given out. But the weird thing is the vouchers were given out to people at a time when they were in crisis. So people didn't have food to eat. People didn't have jobs. So you have a few vouchers given off to rural populations. And, and imagine this for a moment. I haven't been able to work. My husband or my spouse has been missing uh, and, and exiled in some sort of fashion. Now you come up with a voucher and tell me that this is worth maybe 10,000 rubles or whatever value it was then. And, and try and convince me that this is of value. The, the, it, was a, it was a disaster because people, one, weren't able to value this. So this is, again, a challenge anytime you're trying to introduce something that has no intrinsic value, is that you have to convince people of its value, and that was difficult during a crisis. And poor farmers were still, they were still trying to hold on to and understand what this voucher was about. 
and you had a few entrepreneur, entrepreneurizing Russians who went around in the community scooping up these vouchers and giving people cash instead. So they'd come to you and say, ah, this government doesn't care about you. What is this paper even going to do for you anyway? You don't have food, you don't have water, you know, you're, you're in crisis. Hey, let me give you cash and you give me the voucher. And you know, it's not unlike what we see, what we saw in Africa or in Kenya a couple of years back again, and I'm dating myself probably first multi-party election where people went around buying um, people's voters cards. But that's because people didn't have a way of valuing what's the importance of this thing. And, you know, cash is king. So in Russia, folks sold off their vouchers. And literally within a week, the noble dream that the government had, that let's, let's, re let's return the wealth of the nation to the population by giving off vouchers, ended up being, a, you know, a nightmare scenario because by the end of that week, everyone... You know, all these vouchers had been scooped up by a few enterprising Russians, and all the national assets were now in the hands of eight or nine really strong Russian figures, uh, later on called oligarchs. But yeah, so everything. So you can imagine the government at that point had tried to was privatizing their oil and gas, their broadcaster, everything that could be nationalized, ended up being owned by a few people. So. Another problem of, of vouchers is, you know, cash, cash is king. And if people don't understand the voucher, then they'll go for cash. But that's very interesting, Kim, you should say that. And when you said the vouchers didn't have intrinsic value, I was wondering why. Because yeah. I would imagine a voucher should have, because a voucher is almost like a document that says you have the obligation to buy up to this amount. Mm -hmm. So it's very specific. In, in, in it, and I'm surprised, I don't know about the Soviet experience, but I, I will not understand why um, uh, you'd say it has no intrinsic value. In fact, when mm. I remember the Kenya Airports Authority, mm. when they wanted to um, tender off some restaurants, some cafeterias within the Kenya Airports Authority, yeah. originally it was, a, it was a voucher system yeah. where all the employees of Kenya Airports Authority would get a lunch voucher yeah. and they would go to the restaurant. And um, at that time, it was at the waving base. It's long been closed now. Yeah. But it's a restaurant where you could go and have a meal and yeah. uh, pay with your voucher. Yeah. And the moment they removed that system and they, they started giving the people cash, yeah. um, the restaurant had to close because people ended up now saving the mm. money to use it for, for other areas. So it actually, it became more destructive for the restaurant owners in that sense. And for me, I, I'm actually very much in support of a voucher system in the sense that yeah. it, it has intrinsic value. Yeah. It can actually work as a complementary currency if you think mm. about it, especially in a scenario where there's limited uh, money supply in a country such as Kenya, we yeah. have this perennial cash crunch. Yeah. You know, if sort of think about it, if we could say, let's pay young people in Kibera, yeah. uh, all those young unemployed people in Kibera, uh, yeah. they go clean up Kibera, and at the end of the week, they're given a voucher. And yeah. with that voucher, they could actually go and buy, go to a Naivas or a Quick Mart yeah. and get household goods to be able to meet their obligations that can really reduce unemployment 
and boost the local um, economy. So I think it's an area where we need to look at. And if you think of like, for example, the Safaricom Bonga points, yes, you know, yes. these are loyalty points that obviously it's, it's, if you think about it, it's, it's a digital voucher if you like, because indeed you can, you can go to uh, any supermarket that Safaricom has a partnership with and buy goods. And if you, anything that facilitates transactions of goods and services yeah. has to be as a complementary currency, which benefit can only be to improve the common good of the economy. So I think it's a fascinating space for research, which we probably need to dig a bit more. In no, you, you know, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you know, you've said something there about, you know, why doesn't it have intrinsic value? Maybe to answer directly, I'd say, this is at a time when, when the Soviet government was collapsing, trust was very low. So remember, people mm. have gone through an experience in an alternate form of economic organization that hasn't worked out well. So when trust is at an all-time low, you introducing something new and novel, you're facing an uphill battle of whether this is credible or not, and whether this is trustworthy or not. And so because the ordinary population weren't privy to the discussions that were happening at the highest levels of the government at the time, you know, their perception of trust in this instrument called a voucher was super, super low. But you raised some good points on, you know, the intrinsicness of a, of a voucher. But, you know, it reminds me, you know, both of us went through the, the 844 system, the previous uh, education system in Kenya, and we were taught, you know, what are the, were there three or four characteristics of money, right? There was something yes, about yes. money and currency. Money is a measure of value. I'm trying to jot them down. I can't even remember like all four. <laughs> I can I can remind you. First, yes. it's a measure of accounting. Yes, a measure uh, of value. Check. Number two, it's a store of value. Store of value. Uh, Check. Two points. Yeah. <laughs> number three, it was a medium of exchange. Aha, uh -huh, there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you really think about it, yeah. a medium of exchange and a store value are contradictory in yes. the sense that if, if something is a very good store of value like gold, mm -hmm. and very unlikely to release it in terms of a medium of exchange because you want to hold it. <laughs> hey, it's hey. a very good store of value. Hey, <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. It's one of the biggest contradictions in monetary thinking that the one thing that is a very good store value actually is a very poor medium of exchange because <laughs> everybody wants to hold it. <laughs> exactly. And you know, you've forgotten the last one, which was a measure of wealth, right? So your status, your, ex, your, your, your sense of pride and identity. Now, a piece of paper that has, you know, a little squibbling here, squibbling there, that says, okay, I'm entitled to X, um, if you don't have trust in the issuer. So part of this issue of, you know, why African governments are very reluctant to Bitcoin and other sorts of alternate currencies. And in Kenya, Bangla Pesa, which I think, you know, we really need to revisit in another episode, is who is the backer of this? Who is the backer of these alternative currencies, right? Like who's Who's, in whose name is this thing a, a measure of value? Um, and that was the problem, right? So like when you think of some of the examples you've raised, like with loyalty points, yes, 
I am happy to redeem, you know, that, that loyalty point for value if I trust the person who's backing up that value, right? If I, if I, if I trust the, the agency, the entity that has issued right. the value. But if I have little trust or, you know, and Kenyans would resonate with this, when some of our large uh, commercial uh, supermarkets disappeared, you know, now all of a sudden you have points that are huge but don't really count for much, right? There's, there's, there's no value. There's no intrinsic value or extrinsic value anymore because your the backer is no longer there. And so it, I, I would love to see a scenario where even as we are thinking about you know, alternative systems and, and vouchers could be great, like you're saying, in terms of releasing liquidity, it raises another issue of points of redemption. So this is only good if I can then go and release the value at an outlet. But if I get to an outlet, and we've seen this in the health space, I get there and they tell me, oh, we don't accept that cover, or we don't, we're not registered with national government or something else, then that presents a problem, no? So then now you've actually killed the liquidity and, and, trapped, and, and trapped people in a system where they can't release value out of these vouchers. Wow, Kim, I think this has to be the most interesting conversation and I couldn't <laughs> agree more, especially when you talk about uh, trust or even trust deficit yeah. and what it does yeah. um, to currency. because you're right, the, the power, you know, when, we were, when the dollar was anchored on the gold standard, mm -hmm. it was really on the physical bars. You could actually go to Fort Knox yeah. and exchange that currency and get gold bars. But when the world moved towards the fiat currency, yeah. It was really, really about uh, this, the name of the United States and the credibility of yes. really the country. And yeah. that's what the world moved on to. And in a sense, it was a good thing because you could unleash much more liquidity because you're not tied to the presence of a commodity, yeah. which you have to keep mining everywhere. So, and I like that part of money has to, it has to be acceptable. And that's sort of like the qualifying thing that it has to be readily acceptable. And if you think about it, the legal tender is the ultimate voucher yes <laughs> because indeed. it can be accepted everywhere <laughs> so it's really legal tender means it's like a voucher to the power of infinite meaning exactly. everybody is actually bound to accept it but when you talk about community currents then i love you raised the issue of bangla pesa because it really played a big role in reducing unemployment in bangladesh mombasa yeah it really helped people unlock all these uh, areas of wealth, local wealth, cultural wealth, heritage. And um, for me, I think uh, the way it was driven out of the scene, I felt we should have studied it a bit more mm -hmm. and sort of ask ourselves, is, are there some nuances that, is there some local element that it's tapping into that it might be harder for a uh, United States dollar to get into? So I think that's a very powerful theme and especially back to the life of the farmer. Yeah. You know, farmers live in a very interesting world where everything is, it's very here and now, yeah. you know, the level of, uh, uh, it's really about uh, cash is king. And that you remember during the demonetization exercise last year, uh, the yeah. central bank had to run some because apparently some farmers were exchanging large amounts of wheat for cash. Oh, wow. And at that point they said, farmers always exchange anything for cash, you know, right. they, uh, <laughs> they they have a huge confidence in, yeah. in, 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 in cash. So when 
they are presented with this alternative opportunity of an e-voucher system. Mm. Um, I think some of it, some of them might sort of feel a bit slighted in a way, mm -hmm. uh, but because of the limitations that come within it, and it might take sort of a bit more hand-holding before it becomes the norm. I got you. I like that parting shot of like, you know, currencies are the ultimate voucher. And, you know, I like that because, you know, it also has the backing of the government and the central banker in that country. So if all of a sudden this thing has no value, I'm entitled to go to the central banker and say, eh, eh, where is the, how come this is no longer a measure of value and a store of value and a medium of exchange and a measure of my wealth? Why is it just not worth why is it not worth any more than the, whatever it's printed on? But anyway, you, you talked about the challenges facing the African farmer. And again, if you're just joining us, this is our premiere episode. Thank you for being with us. We're discussing the government stimulus package. We've somehow found ourselves grading deep into vouchers and currency issues. But I'm now pivoting to talk about challenges facing the African farmer. And can you talk about the need to release liquidity I don't know if you know, but this week we celebrated World Nutrition Day. Woohoo! And wow. Yeah, World Nutrition Day. And our, and our theme, believe it or not, is eat right, bite by bite. And you know, <laughs> this idea of eating right, bite by bite, it reminds me of you know, the, the challenges that we personally faced about a week ago when we were trying to have lunch and somebody was choking on a sausage that was not that was not right and if you want more of that please click below in the previous episodes you 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 be able to hear can struggling on a sausage but uh, eating right bite by bite is that possible feasible given covid and the stimulus package you know kim one of the best um classes that i took as an undergraduate was on food Mm. And I remember the, the, name, the name of the course was Feeding the World and Feeding Yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think it would speak perfectly to this conversation because there's a macro element of food security. When I say agriculture is 25% of GDP, blah, 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 employs all the youth, that's a very macro view. Mm. But there's a second part, and that's the feeding the world part. Mm. And the second part of the semester was feeding yourself. Mm -hmm. And it was really about nutrition and it's about well-being. And it's not just about quantity, but it's also about quality. Yeah. And I think sometimes that nuance um, gets a bit, a bit lost. I think sometimes as we move towards large-scale agriculture, it becomes about big agriculture and becomes about uh, quantity. But mm. I think the world is moving towards also in terms of quality and, 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 and a sense of community. Yeah. And, and, and I remember one of the interesting books that we read in that particular class was The Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. And it's a fascinating assessment on um, what are we having for lunch today in terms of mm -hmm. nutrition, in terms of our lunch today. Mm. Uh, so I think um, what is we are being invited to as economists is to, yes, look at the World Nutrition Day and say, yes, quality is as important as quantity. Every time I hear about uh, the big four, I, I, I hear food security, which is great, mm. but I don't hear about, you know, the, 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 the quality part of it. When we had the Blue Economy mm. Conference, it was last year, and some of the experts there were saying, 
you know, the amount of nutrition in the ocean, in the seas, wow. is incredible. Wow. And Japan has been able to tap into the nutritional value of the ocean. And I think Japan has possibly the highest longevity in terms of life um, expectancy. And right. I think the experts then were saying, you Kenyans are used to your Ugali, your Gideri, but think about the blue economy yeah. as an avenue for incredible nutrition, yeah. incredible taste. And I think if we can move towards that kind of thinking when we mark this year's World Nutrition Day, I think we will be a leader in, in Africa. And you know, you, you raised and touched on such good points. And you know, this issue of quantity versus quality, to be honest, has some behavioral underpinnings, right? So back in the day, and again, I'm slightly dating myself, but I may have been in toddler, in toddler clothes or probably not even born yet. You know, Kenya went through a tremendous drought and the, 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 not discounting the loss of life and the, the, the chaos it caused, you have a scenario where people came out of that drought thinking, hey, you know, more food is better than quality food. And I think that's been a, a thing that we've seen. And also as incomes have grown, and not just in Africa or in Kenya, it's across the world, right? Like as we've become richer, people have invested more in what they're eating, not necessarily thinking about whether it's the most nutritious thing, but definitely more of it because we, we know spending power and purchasing ability has gone up. And, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping that we do in this World Nutrition Day is also think about, one, going back to crops that, you know, increase resilience, but also, two, thinking about how do you strengthen food systems that, is, that have been destroyed in part because of COVID, either because of shutdowns or lockdowns, uh, or because inputs couldn't get to farmers on time, or the planting season was destroyed, or if you're in East Africa and living through the apocalyptic times that we're in, you've had to battle floods and locusts and, and, and COVID itself. So all these things have taken a hit to supporting our food security. So I'm curious, you know, can we think about making our food systems more resilient and making our farmers more resilient and, you know, with or without vouchers? Like what, what can we do there? Mm, and uh, when it, I love the use of the word resilience mm. because it speaks to sustainability. It, it has a long-term view. Yeah. And one of the things that have been disrupted right now is those global supply chains. Yeah. And people are realizing uh, there is value in local supply chains. Yeah. And this is something that had been a niche concept, especially it began mostly in the, in the United States. Yeah. Where there was almost a movement towards uh, bringing more from the local communities. So sort of food was part of uh, a bigger ecosystem of supporting local farmers and supporting local uh, produce and creating those local communities and local economies, which was quite profound. It's still a niche concept mm. because at, at the end of the day, the issue of price comes in yeah. and you find sometimes price because you can get cheap imports you know, it, it, it always poisons that conversation. Yeah. And Kenyans are very price sensitive. So I think we can always have these great concepts of uh, more resilient and uh, more sustainable. But you have to understand that Kenyan is such a price sensitive citizen. 
Yeah. In fact, somebody was saying Kenyans are the most price sensitive in the world. But <laughs> even an extra 20 shillings yep. uh, in terms of expenditure, somebody yep. might actually sweep. So I think, yes, we say China sort of has contributed to cheaper prices and cheaper inputs. Yeah. And but in worlds where incomes are very low, yeah, and uh, the currency is still very limited, yeah, the issue yeah. of price is such an important part that sometimes we forget the nutrition and sort of like these other nice things yeah. that we would love to have. And I think that has to be the issue. Interesting. And you know, it's it's you've touched on such interesting points that on the one hand, when you think of price sensitivity. And in Africa, we are blessed that we have an abundance of natural resources that can help us bolster our food security, whether it's you know, large tracts of land, <clears throat> a huge population that can actually till that land. You know, the cost of bare essentials, maize, beans, milk, meat, eggs, is still fairly costly that you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's troubling that you know, a family will struggle to put food on the table in a country that really has no business not being food sufficient. And countries like Israel, for example, where, you know, they really have to fight the elements to be able to farm. Like everything about the natural environment is saying you have no business farming here. Israel has been able to say, no, 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 we will not only farm, but we will feed our people and export excess mm-hmm. um, to in the, in, in, the way that, in the best way that we can. And it reminds me of a documentary I watched way back and the Israeli prime minister was explaining their approach to farming. And I, I was floored. Like I listened to it and I, I was in shock. So his, his main thrust was because of the nature of where Israel sits, the geopolitics, and the fact that they you know, don't have rains as frequently as other parts of Africa do, they really have to be careful and mindful of how they use their natural resources when it comes to planting, when it comes to uh, livestock. So they calculate every liter of water. Where is that going? So is that going into domestic consumption? Is that going into farms? Is that going into, and if it's going into farms, how many farms? And then he picked an example of dairy production. And he said, they work backwards based on a figure of how much milk demand is Israel going to have in the next year? So then they divide that demand across the farms, across the kibbutz, and then say, okay, so each kibbutz is going to produce X. And then walk backwards for that and say, okay, if that is the number of, that's the amount of milk production, how many cows is that? And then how much pasture is that? And then how many uh, liters of water are required in, in addition to supply and to serve that milk production ecosystem. And so they can work all the way backwards and provide you know, a fairly robust daily system that, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Israeli cows still produce the most milk um, of all livestock. And it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, again, when I did economics, the critic, one of the harsh criticisms that was there of the central planning government in China was that it wasn't possible or practical for a central planner to sit somewhere and dictate how many kilos of rice are going to be consumed and then walk backwards from that and then say each smallholder farmer 
should produce X amount of rice. But somehow the Israelis have made it work for a few value chains. So I, it's, it's, it goes to show like if the will is there and the political motivation is there, you know, the, the will finds a way. That's extremely insightful. I think the one advantage Israel has had over the rest of the world is it's made that mental leap when you have so many hostile neighbors. Yeah. Uh, the ability to feed yourself is so important. Yeah. You know, we take it for granted because here in Kenya, we are at peace with all our neighbors. Yeah. And it's easy to imagine that we can always import and export food. Yeah. But can you imagine a situation in time when all your neighbors around Kenya are are not exporting food to you like right yes. now we depend on so much imports from tanzania all those yeah. onions and chilies that come from can you imagine in a situation where all your neighbors yeah. are not exporting and yeah. i think israel they contemplated that scenario and they made the necessary measure so for them it's it's first a function of security mm. before an economics sector and i think that's what we need to have in Kenya, I think, and sometimes I don't like the name agribusiness mm. because I think I feel like it 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 commoditizes agriculture into just one of the many sectors as if it's an option. Mm-hmm. But I realize it's not really an option. Yes, for the big large-scale farmers who can be very commercial, yeah. uh, yes, and they end up getting most of the credit from the banks. Yeah. But there's a whole layer of small-scale farmers who really it's a livelihood. It's not even really an economy, it's really a livelihood and yeah. a sustenance. And I think if we start treating agriculture and the farmer from a position of security, national security, where almost the president gets briefs on what's in our strategic grain reserves every year. Yeah. When are we gonna launch warehouse discounting? You know, warehouse discounting, invoice discounting, the concept was first floated in parliament 10 years ago mm. and it only made its way to final reading last year a oh, solid wow. nine years so it tells you of all these cartels and interests mm. but the moment we decide in Kenya that agriculture is actually food security and anybody who is uh, participating in corruption any cartels anything that is pro- preventing the economy from functioning smoothly is an act against national security. Exactly. If we get to that point, we'll become an Israel. We will yeah. be exporting food, not only to East Africa, to the whole of Africa. Correct. Correct. And, and you're right. You definitely also do need strong geopolitics. You need strong uh, inertia inside the country. You know, flashbacking a little bit on Zimbabwe in the early 90s. You know, Zimbabwe was the breadbasket of Africa. And good grief it's hard to believe that everything they went through thereafter uh, and you know it just goes to underscore like there's there's definitely we, we need to look at national agriculture as not only you know food security issue but like a national security issue like it's as bad as you invading the country right like this is this is high priority and on that you know you've talked about and we've been talking about some of these innovations on you know central planning and trying to think about so, uh, national security. The thing that I'm waiting for, and I don't know when we will get there, is creating a futures market around our agricultural produce. So, you know, it just seems ridiculous that even with the warehouse discounting, our farmer today is going to pick that voucher, go plant maize, and it's still not sure what price he's going to get at the end of his planting cycle. 
and yeah. it just it just baffles my mind because it feels like you're shooting for the dark right like you're just hoping and praying that you get a good price and we've gone through this year in year out that you know it's it's ridiculous that no one has thought hey let's have a futures contract in place let's talk to farmers about quality and and it's great to see some private sector led initiatives i know i don't want to discount the work that some of the private sector partners have been doing in terms of contracting farmers etc but at a national level surely we should be able to come up with a market that you know you can buy and sell stocks in the agricultural futures market you as a farmer you know okay i am guaranteed x price for this quality on this particular date and as a government and as private sector, we are all running to make sure that we can fulfill that futures contract and that on the day of delivery, you know, it's here's the produce at, at the agreed price, at the agreed quality. Farmer X, here is your price, uh, here's your income. Thank you for doing business, right? And so in markets where this happens, you know, farmers look at the price and decide, is it worth going into production? Here, we almost go in with, a high level of optimism, a little bit of nostalgia, maybe a little bit of guilt because we didn't invest in farming sooner before we launched into our private careers, and maybe just this fairly romanticized hope that you know all will work out well. What do you think, Ken? Am I being too harsh on our food systems? I think you're absolutely spot on. You know, the Chicago Board of Trade, yeah. um, I think, was founded in the 1850s. You know, the concept that you've just discussed um, has been in existence in Chicago almost 170 years. Mm -hmm. For me, the fact that we are still struggling with this today, yeah. almost 170 years later, yeah. and, and just from a broader perspective, just the spectacular lack of innovation yeah. or insights or research that is the local farmer can access. I think it's profound. If you think of the big research institutions we have, even here in Kenya, yeah. agriculture, very little of that actually gets to the farmer yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Sometimes you really sit back and you almost wonder this dearth of research that gets to the farmer or insight. You know, you sometimes wonder, is there an, an agenda of sorts to keep the farmer weak? Because it, it's, it's impossible that an idea yeah. can be in another country for well over a century yeah. and you're still struggling. It's almost as if you having a situation and your neighbor found a solution 200 years ago right. and you're still <laughs> thinking through it, you know. <laughs> yes. It almost becomes almost conspiratorial. <laughs> yes, it's irrational. That's what that is. Yes, correct. <laughs> so sometimes I really wonder, because if you really think about it, a free farmer is a very independent mind. Yeah. Because he can make free decisions. Yeah. And 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 can chat. He has a high level of agency. Yep. And sometimes I really wonder if. Um, there are people who maybe that might not be in their best interest, mm -hmm. you know, having that. And so this perpetual slavery relationship mm. that farmers are peasants mm. um, sometimes uh, fulfills a certain um, economic model. So sometimes mm -hmm. I'm tempted to think in that direction because it's very hard to explain how research that has been known for over a century mm. is still not being um, sort of practice. And that's one powerful example you've, you've just given. And that's something that can unlock immense wealth 
yeah. for a lot of farmers and can really improve the level of investment and on quality. I, I agree. I agree. And I like that piece of it. Is, it. is there a conspiracy out there? So it made me think, when I did my postgraduate, I was super surprised that one of our pivotal agricultural policy documents was crafted in the 1920s. And I like to think of myself as old, but I'm not that old. And to try and think that everything that we're doing now is being supported by something that, you know, Swinerton came up with back in the day, or at least was dubbed Swinerton back in the day, it is crazy, but it goes to show that we've underinvested in certain key pillars. And, and, and to be honest, I can understand you know, aspirationally a young democratic country looking to carve its wings, move forward, you know, leaping and growing in bounds. And you know, I don't want to hate on our, uh, our forefathers and people who came before us. I can understand how you know, certain sectors like, hey, get a white collar job, go be this, go do that, was super aspirational. But we may have forgotten some of the foundational aspects of, you know, if we don't have food in our stomachs, then, you know, we can't very well eat the currency or Bangla Pesa. So, you know, then there's, there's a problem, right? So we, we, we need to revisit. But Ken, we've been talking for ages and I don't know if you want us to attempt uh, uh, the first conclusion or what are your thoughts? What do you want to do? No, I think it's a good time to wind up. I think those are powerful nuggets. When I think about the average age of the Kenyan farmer is about 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And I ask myself, where are the next generation of food suppliers? When I think about Nairobi, we are what, about 4 million people mm -hmm. who feeding when all our fertile red soil in Kiambu has been turned into malls and real estate projects. Indeed. You know, who will feed us? Where are these young, vibrant farmers yeah. who will use technology, research, and really take our agriculture to the next level? I think those are the conversations that love to be part of as we move forward. I agree. And you know, you, you talked about where are the young, vibrant farmers. And I thought in my head, can I say where are the youth? Then I realized, yes, I'm out of the youth bracket, so I can actually... <laughs> point my finger and, and wave salaciously and say, where are the youth to address these challenges? But I guess, you know, the onus falls on all of us. COVID has equalized us in such a way that, you know, whether you're buying food from the supermarket or you're buying food from your mamamboga or grocery lady across the street, or you're going to a market or you used to go to a market that is now closed, food security affects us all. And I like in what you said that, you know, if we make and prioritize agriculture, as an issue of food security and national security as well, that you know, we, we may be able to finally break free of some of these shackles and, and launch into you know, a new destiny and a new era. So I guess let's put a comma in this conversation. Next week, we will definitely continue uh, to have vibrant conversations, maybe around some of the other issues around the budget, or, and the stimulus package, or maybe something else entirely. And so if you have some ideas, if you have some thoughts on what you would like us to talk about, please don't hesitate to reach us out, uh, ping us um, via social media platforms. Ken, do you know what is your Twitter handle? I'm on at K Gishinga on Twitter. 
Oh man, now you, yours is so simple. So mine is a bit harder. Mine is at A-L-L-S-C-H-2001. Don't ask me why I picked that. Uh, Kim Karaoke was taken. To do with Alliance High School. Sadly, it does, but I'm very happy to be a proud alumnus of the premier um, high school in this country, the Alliance High School. But yes, please ping us on Twitter, uh, reach us out on Facebook, and we should be able to answer your questions and would love to incorporate your comments and feedback into our programming for the next episode. Ken, anything to say before we pen off? No, this was super exciting. Thank you so much for those um, very powerful insights, especially on the international part, uh, how we can compare Israel's situation, the Soviet Union, and what that can mean in terms of how we think about Kenya. I think that was very powerful, and thanks for that. And thank you as well, Ken. I am always in amazement of your command of different bits of his, uh, trivia and history. Did you do history in high school by any chance? I didn't. Ah, you didn't. One day we oh. talk about our education system. I that's think so. That's another episode <laughs> because to be honest, for the life in me, I can only hold firm a few numbers in my head at a time. And that might be explained by the fact that I left the youth bracket a couple of years back. So I guess I'm also reeling in my own... <laughs> understanding my own sort of lifespan and, 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 and my, my, my fallibilities as an individual. But yes, this has been fun. Let's join, let's do it again. Please join us uh, for our next episode and feel free to share your comments, feedback on Twitter, Facebook, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. All right, everyone, have yourselves a lovely day. Oken, you didn't tell people what you're having for lunch. What are you having for lunch? Today I'm having ugali and chicken. <laughs> ah, interesting. So no sausages, eh? <laughs> That's the free lunch for today. Excellent. So I am still doing That's my regular dish. See, here's the thing. I used to I used to love chapatis. Again, another byproduct of high school. And if you're not sure what a chapati is, it's some sort of a roti uh, made with flour and oil and water cooked just right. And if you know someone who who knows exactly what they're doing. They put a little ghee in there, mm, or something. Uh, but now that's changed. I'm now more of a Puritan when it comes to food. I, I've become simple as, as, a, as of age. Now I enjoy things that are cooked through one process and one process only. Like boil it, uh, fry it, but don't do a bit of oil here and then steam it and then boil it and then do other things. I keep it simple with my food. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I am enjoying my dose of hot water as I continue on my journey on intermittent fasting. And that's content again for another episode. But thank you so much, guys. Have yourself a lovely day. Stay safe. Uh, remember to practice social distancing. And we shall join you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Yes, bye.